Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can tell something about who lives somewhere by looking at the house, at the residence. If, you, if you're walking along a street in some town, some city somewhere, you see a, a house which is falling apart and there are weeds in the garden and it hasn't been painted in I don't know how long and the door's kind of hanging on its hinges and there are shady characters coming to and fro and questionable things happening there. You know something about who lives there. It gives you an idea of the kind of people that live there. If you go by a beautiful estate where everything is pristine and there are royal looking guards at the gates and there's a banner flying uh, from the highest point of, of, of the castle, then that tells you something about who lives there. And we've been going through the catechism in the last weeks and, and looking at these early Lord's Days and using the allegory of human nature as a residence built, designed and built to be the dwelling of the great king of kings. Human nature, in fact, was built that way to, to be inhabited, to be the dwelling of God, the temple of God. And, and the blueprints for this glorious residence, this royal residence, the blueprints are the law of God. That's what we were built, that's what we're designed to reflect to live and to act and to be according to the law of God, which is very simple. Love God and love your neighbor. We're designed to be a place, a dwelling of the most high God in which there was pure love for him and for others. Now, when we look around the world and even when we look in the mirror, we don't see that. We see fallen human nature, the Apostle Paul speaks about fallen human nature and says that fallen humans live hating one another and being hated. And we can put a lot of makeup on that and we can hide it and be sophisticated about how we hate each other. But outside of Christ, that's the diagnosis of the scripture, that we live in hate, no matter how much we try to hide it. Now, we've been through the part of the Catechism which deals with that, the fact that we're dead in our sins and misery. We've been to Lord's Days 5 and 6, and we've learned that God has provided a solution to the problem of man's sin and man's fall. There is a Redeemer, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is true man, and he is true God. He has all the resources and all the ability to save fallen sinners. He comes to that falling apart, condemned ruin, which is fallen human nature, that which is slated for eternal demolition and destruction, and he renews. He brings life out of death. He brings perfection out of imperfection. Now, the Lord Jesus having lived in this world and suffered and died and risen again and ascended into heaven, is the first perfect human being who has never sinned. 
first one. The first one who has never, ever sinned, and he is in the presence of God as the head of the new humanity. In Christ, humanity is restored to be that glorious, fitting habitation of God that we were designed to be. And so that's, that's the exciting news of Lord's Days 5 and 6, celebrating the power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus and his saving work. Now, we just read Romans chapter 5, and, and in the back of our mind was that question of Lord's Day 7. Are all men then saved by Christ just they, as they perished through Adam? We, we, we went into great detail about how all human beings inherit that fallen, ruined state of humanity in our first father, Adam. We really went deeply into that. And so now we've been told that there's a solution, that Christ fixes things. So does that mean then that everybody's fine now? Everybody dies in Adam, everybody is alive in Christ. And as we read through Romans chapter 5, perhaps you thought, did the catechism get it right? Because so often in, Lord's, in, in Romans 5, it seems to be saying yes. Look at Lord, uh, Romans 5, uh, 18, for instance. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So it seems to be saying that Adam plunged everybody into sin and Christ takes everybody back out. And yet we have Lord's Day 7, question answer 20 here, beginning the answer with the word no. Now, if we have to choose between the catechism and the Bible, we're going to go with the Bible. But is there a problem here? Is there a contrast between the teaching of Scripture and the catechism? Well, let's keep reading. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. It is a superficial reading of Romans 5 to assume universalism. Universalism is that it Everybody's okay now. Jesus died for everyone. Everybody gets to go to heaven, whether they are converted or not, whether they repent or not, whether they are regenerated or not, whether they are in Christ or not. Everybody gets to go to heaven. And in terms of our allegory, that would mean that it pleases God not only to move into restored and redeemed and renewed palaces, that new nature that we have in Christ, but that he will also move into those condemned ruins full of lurking evildoers and be quite happy to live in those places as well, in unregenerate sinners. And, and that simply does not fit with the general teaching of Scripture or the character of God as we know him in the Scripture. And what does the Scripture teach? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam... All die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And, okay, that again sounds kind of universal, doesn't it? All in Adam and all in Christ. But here's the important preposition. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's the important point here. Because there are two types of people in this world. There are those who are in Adam, and there are those who are in 
Christ. Now, how do you get to be in Adam? Well, that's easy. You just get born. So every one of us here has been born. And so we were born in Adam as descendants of our first parents with a fallen human nature. And what does the baptism form say? Well, let's just turn to it for a second, the baptism form. And right at the beginning, as we have this sweet, cute little baby up at the front of the church, one of the first things the church says over that sweet little angel that's being held by grandma First, we and our children, this is page 597, we and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. The baby was just born a few days ago, a few weeks ago, and the church is saying this child is in Adam. This child is is born like everyone with a fallen, sinful nature. And this child needs Christ. This child needs the divine and supernatural work of the Spirit of God to give him, to give her a brand new life, a new birth. This child needs to be born again. Sometimes you think, well... That whole emphasis on being born again, that's the evangelicals that talk about that. Oh, no, no, no. It's right here in our baptism form. Our children need to be born again. We all do. And what does it mean to be born again? It means to be born from above. John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. To be born again can also be translated to be born from above. To be born as someone who was not generated by the will of man, as we read in John chapter 1, but someone who, was, who comes into a new life by the will of God. It is to be grafted into Christ. And Romans chapter 11 speaks about that. If you go to Romans chapter 11, Paul speaks about an olive tree. The olive tree is the, the covenant people of God, and Abraham and the patriarchs are the trunk of that tree, and Paul, in, in Romans chapter 11, he's talking to believers who originally are not Jews, they're Gentiles, and he says, look, here you are. You're part of the church. How did that happen? Well, here's this big olive tree. It represents the church. There were some branches that were broken off. Which were those branches? Those were the unbelieving Jews. They didn't believe in the Messiah. So God broke them off. He, he threw them aside. And he took you, who weren't part of it all, and he grafted you in. Now, if you're a branch, what's going to happen to you if you're not connected to the tree? You're not going to have, you're not going to participate in the life of the tree. You won't get the sap of the tree. You won't be able to be green and produce leaves and, and fruit. A branch of a tree just lying there on the ground will rot, it will die. And so you need to be in the tree. That's the picture there in Romans chapter 11. How are you in the tree or out of the tree? Well, Paul says the branches that were unbelieving were broken off. And you were grafted in because of faith in Christ. That's what unites us with him. Now, the Lord Jesus uses a similar allegory or, or picture in John chapter 15, where he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you don't produce fruit, you're dead, 
you're physically connected to me, but there's no, there's, my life is not in you, then the gardener is going to just chop you right off and throw you away. That's the same kind of picture, just with a different kind of plant. And so, to be in Adam, you just need to be born. To be in Christ, you need to be grafted in by the work of God through the gift of faith, which the Holy Spirit gives through the preaching of the gospel. And then, and then we look at Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. Now, Romans 6, Paul has just said, look, you know, everybody that is born, they, they're in sin, and by the work of Christ, everyone is redeemed. And he says, okay, so, so how, are to we, how are we to react to that? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What is he saying? Well, to say that people can be saved eternally, even though they continue in sin, they continue with a fallen, corrupt, condemned nature, is something which the Bible repudiates. The Bible says, no, that's not possible. If you know the the life-giving and life-changing power of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus in your life, you cannot continue in Adam. You can't. You're going to be changed. And so salvation, says the Scripture, is only for those who are in Christ. And Paul continues there in chapter 6 of Romans in verse 3. He says, look, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That means that when you're baptized, and baptism, it means being brought into the community of faith. If you come in as an adult, it means coming in through the profession of your faith. If you're baptized into Christ, you're part of the community of faith, and you are connected with Jesus so that the breaking down of that old corrupt human nature, which went into the grave, and the coming out of a new human nature with a glorified body, that's not just something that happened to Jesus, that happened to you because you are part of Christ. You are in Christ. And so how do, we, how do we get to participate in that? How do we get to identify with Jesus as he leaves the, the brokenness and the corruption of the, the fallen human nature behind? He, was not, he had no sin, but he, he lived in, in a body which was uh, experiencing the consequences of the fall. And as he left that behind and came out of the grave to a new life, how do we participate in that? Well, question answer 21 tells us. We need to be grafted into Christ by a true faith. And what does that mean? Look at, look at answer 21. I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. It's that simple. How did we fall? We fell by not believing what God said. Adam and Eve said, well, God said this, and the serpent said that. We'll go with what the serpent said. They didn't believe God. That's what, that was the problem. They didn't believe the word of God. And then they acted according to their disbelief, their unbelief. And so that's how we fell. How we're redeemed is to go the other way. We are redeemed by simply believing. 
by accepting and acknowledging as true everything that God says in his word about who he is, about what he has done, about who we are, what we have done, about our sin, about salvation, everything he says, we believe. That's true faith. But it's not just that. It's not just a sure knowledge, because you can have the Bible memorized. And I know of scholars who, I know of a scholar who can quote from memory most of the Old Testament in Hebrew. He knows the Bible back to front, better than a lot of Christians, but he doesn't believe in Jesus. It's not enough to only know and even to even say that it is true. The apostle James says the demons believe and they tremble. They believe, they know who God is, they know what sin is, they know about the fall, they know about the cross, they know about the resurrection, they know about the ascension, they know about the new heavens and the new earth, they know all these things and they know that they're true, but they're still condemned to everlasting damnation. So just knowing is not enough. It's, it's, you need to have it, the knowledge, but you need more than the knowledge. And that's the second part of question and answer 21. At the same time, it is a firm confidence. It's a firm confidence that these true things are not just true facts that are in my mind and that I rehearse and can spit out on a, on a test, but these things are true for me, that I am a sinner, that Christ saved me, that Christ died for me, that the Holy Spirit has come into my heart, that the Holy Spirit has given me a new heart, and that the Holy Spirit is at work in me. That is true faith. We know it, and we're certain that these true things are happening and being experienced in our lives. Now, in John chapter 14, 23, Jesus says this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. God says that the Father and the Son in the Spirit will come and live in us, live right in us, in our hearts. He won't do that for just anyone. He doesn't do that randomly to just any person who's fallen and sinful, but he comes to those who love him. He comes to those who keep his word. He comes to those, in other words, who have true faith, who accept as true all that God has revealed in his word and have a firm confidence that these things are true for them in Christ. And when we have true faith, then God moves in to our hearts, and he dwells in us as a residence which is fit for the king. Now, question answer 22 says, okay, well, can you tell me what the content of this faith is? I mean, you said I need to know as true everything that God has revealed in the word. I, I need to be confident that it's true for me, that there's forgiveness, there's righteousness. But, but Tell me what I need to believe. What, what is the content of the faith? And the answer is there in question answer 22. I got to believe everything that is promised in the gospel. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, I have to believe what is promised in the gospel. And the articles of the Christian faith, look at them as you see them on page 524 there. This is just walking through the history of redemption. It's walking through from Genesis to Revelation. It's, it's an incredibly 
beautiful and elegant and succinct summary of the entire historical record of the Scripture. All of the things that God has done and promised. It begins with Genesis, with creation. It goes on to Jesus Christ, Genesis 3.15, all the way through to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It goes through the, his conception, his, his birth, his suffering, his descent into hell. This is the Gospels. His ascension into heaven, that's the end of the Gospels, the beginning of Acts. His sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and coming to judge the living and the dead. That's all through the epistles and through to Revelation. And then finally, the life everlasting at the end. That's where the new heavens and the new earth, which we read about at the very end of the Bible. This is, the, the Apostles' Creed is not something that a bunch of theologians one day, they got together and said, you know what, let's make up some theological truths that will force people in the future to memorize so that they're good people and they're good Christians and they get into heaven. That's not what, that's not what happened. This is simply the church saying, you know what, this is what the Bible tells us. But it's not just a random collection of truths. It is a confession and a summary of what God has told us about himself and about us. We need to take God at his word. We need to acknowledge who he is, what he has done. And we need to trust that he will do what we cannot, that he unites us with Christ so that we're no longer just in Adam in condemnation, but we're in Christ in redemption. And Paul speaks about that in Romans 6, as you look at verses 3 through to 5, Paul speaks about that. He says, look, if you believe and are baptized, because baptism and belief go together, you're, you're baptized into his death, you're buried with him by baptism in death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What is he saying? He's saying this. We share with Jesus in the destruction of the flesh. What, who died on the cross was the very incarnation of sin. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What died on the cross was the very made into fleshness of our sin and the sin of all those who would be saved. That was crucified. It was nailed to the cross, and it died. It died. And then what rose was the new man, innocent and holy and righteous and having fully kept the law of God with a glorious new body. This this is the picture, Jesus dying and rising again is the picture of our death to sin and our regeneration, our being born again, getting a second life, getting a new life, a resurrection life, a life which lives in the newness that we have in the Lord Jesus, being remade after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. So in terms of our, our picture, that allegory, it's Christ coming into our life and smashing and ripping out all the old gross stuff that belongs to the old nature and totally redoing and renovating and renewing us according to his nature, the new human nature that we have in Christ. And so that's what God is doing. That's what Jesus did for you. 
That's what the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is applying to you. He's making you into a temple fit to be the very habitation of God. He's turned your heart into a royal residence with Christ on the throne. And the only way to experience this is to be so closely identified with Christ that you share in all of his benefits and everything that he has done. This whole idea of being changed and renewed and, 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 and regenerated is not randomly handed out to every human being that's sending at them. It is for those who are grafted into Christ by true faith. This is how Paul puts it in Galatians 2.20. This is what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the new life that we have in Christ. That means we're no longer condemned ruins. We are now redeemed and under renovation. And even though we're not finished yet, there's a lot of hammering that needs to happen. God has already moved in. The king has already moved in, even though the project is still underway. So who is saved? Those who are in Christ. You know, if you're not in Christ, you can paint the ruins with whitewash. You can straighten things up and try to arrange things so they look a little less messy. But if you are not in Christ, if you do not know the power of the blood and the spirit and the word of Christ in you, if you do not know the power of a new heart and a new life, you can never change who you are. Only Christ can change you. And you know, a lot of Christians and a lot of wannabe Christians, they spend a lot of time trying to be a better person. And the Bible says you're wasting your time. It's putting lipstick on a pig. You can't change your nature by trying to be better. You need Christ. And how do you get Christ? Well, you believe. You're grafted by true faith. You believe. You repent and you believe. Now, what do you have to believe? Well, you've got to believe the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Well, it's not a bunch of theology that you've got to get right in the exam. When the Lord Jesus returns on that great day, he's not going to set us all in school desks at picks and, and make us write an exam. And if we don't get all the theology right, then, then we're not allowed into heaven. That's not how it works. The gospel is summarized in the creed. Now look at the creed for a second and see what it says in Article 1. I believe in God the Father. Look at Article 2. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Look at Article 8. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, Article 9 says, I believe. I believe a holy Catholic Christian church. I don't believe in the church. I believe in God. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Spirit. That is faith. Not to know some theology, not to memorize the catechism, but faith is to know and love God. Not to know about him, not to know him intellectually, but to know him intimately. And when the Bible talks about knowing, it's the kind of knowing which is so deep, so intimate, 
and which draws the knower and the known together so closely that the Bible uses that verb in the Hebrew to describe the love between a husband and a wife. Adam, in the original language, and in the King James, you can still read it there, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. That's the kind of knowing. It is an intimate knowing of deep love. That is how we know God. That is the content of the Christian faith, to know God. I'm not making this up. That's what the Bible says. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice that Jesus doesn't say eternal life is knowing about God. It is knowing God. Knowing God the Creator is my Father. That God the Son is my Redeemer. That God the Spirit is my sanctifier. That he's the one who is working in me and changing me so that more and more I become what a real human being is supposed to be. A reflection, an image of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a believer is to know God, to love God, and to want to reflect God more and more. To know God is to live in him and for him to live in us. To know God is to, to love him. It is to desire him. It is to long for him. It is to delight in him. It is to want to please him. It is to want to honor him. When you are in love and you hear the voice of your beloved, your heart just thrills. And when we hear the voice of God, there's nothing more, there's nothing better for us than to hear him speak to us. Which is why a true Christian never lightly abandons the gathering of God's people. We don't show up because we want to hear pastor so-and-so or pastor so-and-so. We, we, we show up because we want to hear God speak to us. And if the pastor is not speaking the word of God, we're simply not interested in listening, no matter how much oratory he might have. We want to hear God. We want to hear the beloved of our souls. Do you know God my brother and sister, do you know him? Or do you just know about him? You, know, you, you need to know that salvation is not automatic. This isn't a factory or an assembly line here where we stamp kids with the water of baptism and shove them through the catechism years and get them professed and get them off to heaven when they die. That's not how it works. Salvation is not automatic. You can go through all the steps and all the processes. You can be the best catechism student and you can be the most assiduous attendant at the services and you can know the Bible back to front and you can recite theology going back to the early church and the church fathers and the medievals and, and the reformers and you can just know a lot about God. But on that day, many will say, says Jesus, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There's a warning here. Salvation and eternal life 
are not through religious rituals. They are not through your covenant status. They are not found in your baptism. They are not found in your church membership. They are not found in your daily devotions. They're not found in your great attempts to be a better person. This is what the Bible says, 1 John 5, 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. This life is in his son. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perish through Adam? No. Only those who are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. That's what the Bible says. You must have the Son. You must know the Son. That is life, to know God the Father and Jesus whom he has sent, Jesus the Son whom he has sent. And it is worth giving up everything. It's worth throwing everything aside. It's worth giving up all that you own. It's worth giving up all of your relationships. It's worth giving up your health and your life itself. To have him. That's what Paul did. Paul threw away all confidence in the flesh. In Philippians 3.8, this is what he says. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Oh, the great big list of how good a person I was as a Pharisee and as a, an Old Testament Christian and a knower of the law. I threw it all away. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, Paul had a good thing going. He, he, he knew his stuff. He was well-trained. He was famous. He was articulate. He was knowledgeable in the law. He could have had a great job and a very, very comfortable living there in, in Jerusalem for the rest of his life. You know what he chose to do? He threw it all away. He went wandering around the ancient world, getting shipwrecked and getting beaten and getting thrown to the lions and imprisoned and finally dying. Why would he do that? He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And brother and sister, I sometimes wonder about us, about me. You know, how much does it cost me to be a Christian? How much does it cost you? No one's putting us in prison. There's no lions that they're throwing us to. They're not, they're not taking away our houses and our, our goods. They're not, they're not beating us in the streets. They're not killing our loved ones. What if they did? What if they did? Would we continue in the faith? And today, God reminds us as we look at laws 7 and 8. 
He reminds us of what true faith really is. It is to be ready to give up everything, to know God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the gospel. That is the Christian life. That is the confession of the church. That is salvation, to know Christ, to know the Father of Christ, to know the Spirit of Christ, the one true triune, eternal God, to know him and to know life in him. Amen.